Well, today we come to perhaps one of the uh, most, we will be discussing one of the most well-known images or um, considerations in the book of Revelation, but that, that's the number 666. But you have to stay here till the end because that's at the very end of the sermon. And so, so I'm not going to cover that first and let you all leave. And then... Uh, and then we have to deal with the rest. So you have to stick around for that. But uh, Revelation chapter 13, we continue our study in this book. I hope you're enjoying it. It is very encouraging to me. I, I do not uh, see it as one of doom and gloom, but one of great encouragement. But Revelation chapter 13 is important and Especially as we look at verses, well, the whole chapter is important, but I say that every week, regardless of what book or what passage we're in. So we'll call that just kind of a standing arrangement. However, I reserve the right to say it every week. But in Mark chapter 20, 13, chapter 22, Jesus um, cautioned and warned us and he told us to beware that there will be false Christs and false prophets and it is good that we are we constantly remind ourselves of this truth for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray if possible the elect uh, a couple things that I would like to mention about this statement that Jesus makes about false Christ and, and false prophets. The fact that he, he mentions that there are, are warns against this idea of false Christ and false prophets leads us to the conclusion then that there is false Christ and false prophets. I know that sounds really obvious, doesn't it? But I, I make that known, or I mention that this morning, because we, we live in, in a world that is... Um, that prizes relativism and seems to take great delight in the idea that there really is no such thing as true and false. In other words, the religion of the day is relativistic, saying that really, there really in, in matters of faith, there really is no such thing as true and false. That there is no such thing as orthodoxy and heterodoxy. That there is whatever suits your need, whatever path you find is certainly acceptable. Now you may believe that, and that's fine. Just please do not call it biblical or think that somehow Jesus endorsed that. Jesus himself said, false Christ and false prophets, which, is, which seems to be explicitly stating that there is a true and a false. There is a right and a wrong. There is a... Um, there is truth and error in regards to matters of faith. And so today what we want to do is we want to do two things. We, we want to study what is true. 
After all, in order for us to understand what is counterfeit, it is our first line of our first approach is to understand what is true. To learn what is false, the best way is to first of all learn what is true. But that doesn't mean we go and exclude ourselves from learning a little bit about what is false. And so today, hopefully, we will accomplish both of those things. We will see both what is true and what is false. Because the thing, what we will be looking at, one of the themes of our message today is that of counterfeit. And let's face it, a good counterfeit is not easily distinguished. If you're in business and somebody gives you an $18 bill, right, you're kind of like, oh, I'm not really going to take this. This looks false to me. I don't know that there is an $18 bill. But if you're given a 20, and it looks and feels like the genuine, it is easy to be fooled. That's the nature of a counterfeit. The nature of a counterfeit is that it is difficult to distinguish. It's not sometimes even impossible to distinguish from what is real. So our goal today is to look not only what is real, but what is false. And so heed the warning that we are given in Mark chapter 13, 22, that there are to beware that there are things that are false. I saw a sign as I was kind of doing some work, and it said, Genuine Bay Watches. I got a kick out of that. Truth in advertising is... This is a Rolex, but it's a fake one, but I'm letting you know up front it's fake. But you probably know. I mean, if you're getting a, wall, uh, a Rolex for $19.99, you know, that should be a good clue. So we need Revelation chapter 13 to help us to identify and to be aware of counterfeits. Let me give you a little of the context of where we have been so that we're all kind of on the same page and going in the same direction. As you'll recall, as we are going through the book of Revelation, we began with, and in chapter 6, um, we saw these seven seals of judgment. And basically, uh, John had a vision of a scroll, and the scroll was sealed with seven wax seals. And each time Jesus broke one of the seals, some sort of judgment or some sort of a bad thing occurred. And then we saw seven trumpets blow. These were very similar. That they, um, they blew and there were seven judgments. And now, starting in chapter 12 and going through chapter 14, we're going to see seven characters in God's redemptive plan. Chapters 12 through 14, like the seals, like the trumpets, describe the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. What we are presented with here is the struggle in, the, in chapters 12 through 14. What we are presented with is the struggle of God's people with our great adversary who makes war against the saints. And recall in chapter 12, verse 17, chapter 12 ended with this dragon. Remember, this is a drama. We don't take this literally. There's not this physical, literal dragon and the beast that we are looking at don't actually look like this. This is a drama. 
that John is unfolding, and we saw that this dragon who was identified as Satan, that serpent of old, went to make war against the saints, the people of God. And so chapter 13 is a description of the two agents that the dragon will use to prosecute his war. So the dragon, who depicts Satan, who goes to make war against the people of God, um, uses two agents. And we saw um, the first agent, the beast, the sea beast, last week. And this week we will see um, a second beast. We, I'll just identify him quickly as the land beast. And, uh, and we identified the, the, the sea beast last week as the persecuting power, and today we will see um, the land beast as religious deception. These are the two agents that the dragon uses to bring, to make war against the people of God. Persecuting power and deception and religious deception. And we've already seen this before in the book of Revelation. Remember in chapter 2 and 3, we, we saw seven churches, seven churches of Asia Minor, and what was it that they were facing? Uh, what two things were they facing? I'll give you two guesses. Persecution and religious deception. We saw them warned against false apostles. We saw them encouraged to endure in their physical trials. We saw them to we saw the encouragement to endure while being slandered. We saw them uh, being encouraged to not give up even when suffering. We saw them thrown into prison. We saw them to be encouraged to be faithful even unto death. We saw that Antipas was killed for hang, for believing. Um, for holding to the faith, we saw an admonishment against permitting or allowing this teaching of Balaam, which we identified as idolatry, and the teaching of Jezebel, which was and religious compromise. And so we saw persecuting power and religious deception that Jesus was warning his churches to beware of. And so now, in chapter 13, what's happening is we're actually seeing those two things, only we're going to zoom in on them. So instead of looking at those two agents from a distance, as we did in chapters 2 and 3, where we actually zoom in, and last week we saw the persecuting power of the beast. He begins by blaspheming um, God and his people, and then he makes war and overcomes the saints. We saw that. We saw that in chapters 2 and 3. Today we will see, um, we will zoom in, if you will, and see in greater detail that religious deception. So that's where we've been and kind of a general idea of where we're going. So let's go ahead and follow along with me as I read chapter 13 verses 11 through the end of the chapter. And then we will uh, look at this with uh, a little more focus. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and he spoke as a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs 
which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause many who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the freemen and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who, under, let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Well, we begin this section with John having this vision, and he sees another beast. This beast comes up out of the earth. So the first beast that we saw last week, the persecuting beast, I kind of identify as the state, if you will, um, though I'm not opposed to identifying it as an individual who would be in charge of some sort of political entity. But we saw the first beast rise up out of the sea, and this beast rises up out of the land. And I don't want to make too much of it, but I, I, I think what we are seeing is that the beast from the sea and the earth indicate this idea of global sovereignty, but they are counterfeits. Now the beast that we are looking at today, the beast that comes up out of the, out of the land, we will see later in chapter 16, verse 3, later he is identified as the false prophet. So let's just go ahead and instead of calling him the land beast, we'll just call him the false prophet. That's, what, that's his um, name throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, so we will just give him that name and follow along with it. He is the false prophet, and he is a counterfeit. You'll notice that he, what, he looks like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. This is a messianic pretender. It is, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, a wolf in sheep's clothing. He looks like a lamb, but he speaks lies. And so Jesus said, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. Favorite lines I've ever heard from a from a sermon, a great admonition was from a former pastor who said, "Look for the zipper." <laughs> it just stuck in my head. <laughs> Paul, you'll recall, as he was uh, getting ready to leave Ephesus, warned the church at Ephesus. They were all gathered around, and he said this. I want you to know that after my departure, savage wolves will arise from among you. You need to keep that in mind. Notice where the savage wolves come from. They do not come from without. They come from within. So, that's... We should be cautioned that false Christs and false prophets will arise. Some will certainly come from without. But don't be surprised if many come from within. Why? Because they look like a lamb. And appearances we are going to see are deceiving. We will notice what this beast, his, his M.O., what this beast does. He makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. You'll notice what he does. He points to the first beast. He does... He teaches and he points to the first beast. 
we should note that true prophets always point to God. But this one entices worship of the beast. And we should, should go ahead and take note what we have here is this counterfeit trinity. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we do see this counterfeit trinity. We see this dragon, and we see then a beast who we will describe as the state or political or governmental power. And now we see this second beast who glorifies or points us to the first beast. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet make up what we might call a, an unholy trinity. We shouldn't be surprised, of course, because this is all about counterfeiting. The book of Revelation is filled with counterfeits. It's pointing out that there are counterfeits. They look real. Just as there is a real trinity, there is, and just as there is a holy trinity, there is an unholy trinity. And I, and I, uh, bristle a little to call it a trinity for it is not it is a maybe more accurate word a triumvirate which is simply a political regime that is controlled by three powerful individuals um, I hate to call it a trinity because it really isn't but we do see this counterfeit just like a counterfeit isn't real this trinity is not real and just as the Holy Spirit his main function is to glorify Christ. Now the Holy Spirit um, of God, we learn, does many different things. But the Holy Spirit's primary job, if you will, ministry, is he glorifies Christ. This false prophet, this counterfeit Holy Spirit, he glorifies the beast. And so we see this beast from the earth coming up. He looks like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. And what does he do? He causes the earth to worship and to glorify the first beast. So, let me summarize briefly um, this, uh, this, the nature of this false prophet. This is a false messiah but has a specific purpose. And the specific purpose of this false prophet, this pseudo-Messiah, is to deceive people into worshiping the first beast of the state. And so whereas the first beast speaks loudly and defiantly against God, the second beast makes the first beast's claim sound plausible. So the first beast comes along and makes blasphemous claims against God, and the second beast comes along and says, yeah, that makes sense, and here's why. Those are plausible words. Here's why they're plausible. We should be aware that this second beast, I believe, can take on many, many forms. False teachers in the church who compromise with the culture's idolatrous institutions, I would say, are false prophets and, and might fit into the category of this second beast. And so, this first beast, the nature of the first beast, looks like a lamb, speaks like a dragon, causes the world and causes people to worship uh, the, the first beast, and he does so with deceptive words.
But he doesn't only use deceptive words. For the signs of this false prophet are that he does do, he does perform great signs. Great signs and wonders. You will notice he performs great signs. That's just what I said. So that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast to it a wound who had the wound of the sword that has, that has come to life. And so this false prophet actually does great signs and wonders. You'll notice that he makes fire come down out of heaven. And of course that reminds us of Elijah. That's what Elijah did. That's what, remember chapter 11, the two witnesses? That's what they did. And this false prophet does the exact same thing. And he does these signs to promote worship of the first beast. Well then, people will generally ask me, well then... Are these really true miracles or are they sleight of hand? Are they genuine miracles? Or are they just magic tricks? I would suggest that at least the majority are just sleight of hand. But Please do not think for a moment that I am ruling out that there is some genuineness behind uh, at least some of them. The, this false prophet does things that look very much like the work of God. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. You'll recall, back in the 80s, maybe you'll recall, there was a man who was very, very popular on television. I forgot his first name, but he was, his last name was Popoff. You remember Popoff? Yeah. A liar and a thief. Faith healer, a Christian, a man who claimed to be of God. And Popoff would do these great signs and wonders. Basically, a crowd would be in the room and he would claim, Oh, there's a woman and her name is Sally Jones. She's sitting in seat 13A and she has a sciatic nerve. And you know what? God has your miracle today. And Sally, what did I say? Sally Jones? All right. I wouldn't make a good Popoff. <laughs> and Sally Jones would come up and he'd pray and she'd get healed. It was amazing. And people began to investigate Popoff. And they could really never find anything. You know, there was just something not right, but couldn't really prove it. And then a media crew, I don't know if it was ABC or NBC, went in and as they, they would follow him around trying to find a chink in his armor. And they finally noticed that Popoff had what looked to be a hearing aid. Now that should be a tip. Right? When a faith dealer has a hearing aid, that should probably tip you off to something. But they realized that Popoff didn't have a hearing aid. 
It was just a simple little radio transmitter. And here's here was the scam. The scam was people would come in and fill out their prayer card, and they would say Sally Jones, and she was sitting in seat 13A in her address. And if she had some rather vague sort of um, ailment, then that would go to one pile. Now, if you had an ailment, if you had a brain tumor and a week to live, all right, I guarantee you, you were going to be in a different pile. And Mrs. Popoff was in the back room. And Mrs. Popoff would say, okay, Sally Jones, C13A, she's got a sciatic problem and blah, blah, blah. And so Mr. Popoff would then play with her be great thing and then all sorts of wonders. Because that's what happens. And Mrs. Jones never really healed. Her wallet was a little lighter than the end And that was about it. Oh, and Mr. Popoff and Mrs. Popoff had steak and lobster that evening at Mrs. Jones. Because Mrs. Jones financed that. Here's the thing. These were good Christian people who loved God and were snookered by the charlatan. How could that be? How is it that Christians... Why did it take ABC or NBC to expose this fraud? And why do people believe such things? He's doing great signs and wonders. It must be true. By the way, Popoff's back at work again. I think I read something in 2011. He's back in the UK doing his thing. Let it die a little bit. And the same, a new group of people are falling for the same old life. Here's the point. Folks, signs and wonders are absolutely zero evidence. Zero evidence of truth. Popoff is a liar and a thief. And there are millions like him. He's not the only one. I just bring him up just because he makes a good story. And so the idea that a false prophet comes along and does signs and wonders, perhaps some of it is just charlatan magic tricks. Perhaps some of it is actually true. So we might ask, well, how would we know? Well, there are probably a number of different ways to know. The first one is you need to know your Bible, first of all. All right? This is why we encourage you to read your Bibles every year. This is why we encourage you to come to small group Bible studies. All right. These are the things that we are trying to be part of. So, James Hamilton, in his, uh, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, gives four, I think, four nice summary statements on how we might be able to know, a test we might be able to understand if this prophet is true. First one, does the miracle exalt Jesus? Well, that's pretty broad, so probably you can make just about anything exalt Jesus. How about this? Does it impress upon people their great need to believe in him and be saved by his death and resurrection because they are sinful and he is holy? Now, that gets a little bit tougher because many today who 
who are popular within the Christian realm. Do not go with that. God is here to be your therapist and to make you feel good and to give you your best life now. And they will never ever talk about these other things that are really uncomfortable. And hence the gospel is never preached. Never. Does it encourage people to read and heed their Bible? And finally, does it encourage love of God and others? So we need to be aware that there are deceiving signs. And I want to point you to Deuteronomy chapter 13, um, verse 1. And I think I've got that up there. Once more. Here we go. I love this. It's just a key verse for me. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign of the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods who have not known, let us serve them, you shall not listen to that prophet to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Notice this. If somebody who writes among you says such and such, and note this, it happens. It comes true. But they are telling you to worship a false god, you will reject what that prophet or dreamer of dreams. In other words, the signs or the wonders that that prophet or dreamer of dreams does, whether slight of hand or real, has no bearing on whether he is true or false. The, gen, the test of genuineness is orthodoxy, not does he do signs or wonders. Now, do, you think, do I think that God does miracles? I know God does miracles. Otherwise, number one, we probably won't pray. Half the time we're praying about stuff is for some sort of miracle. So yeah, does God do miracles? Absolutely. But some individual who strolls along and says such and such, and it actually happens, is not the test of orthodoxy. This individual in Deuteronomy does miracles. And our false prophet in Revelation does miracles. But notice what he does. He points to the beast. And Deuteronomy clearly says, if he tells us to go and serve other gods, you will not listen to that person. miracle is not what determines the individual is true. And so our false prophet does miracles that points to the counterfeit Christ and that is idolatry. And I'm pretty sure God said something about that somewhere. And this false prophet deceives the whole world. You'll notice that he even seems to make this, the image of this beast come, come alive. This is certainly an illusion in Daniel chapter 3. You'll recall that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were um, kind of doing their thing there in Babylon and kind of going about their day. And there was this image that was established and everybody said, okay, if the horn blows, everybody fall down and worship. And these three Hebrews would not worship this false beast. And king comes along and says, you know, listen, I'm going to give you another chance. Fall down and worship the image of the beast.
I think if you'll go forward, let's look at their response. Maybe if you'll look at once. Here's their response. King says, listen, if you don't, man, you're going to die. Let's turn into fire. They say, well, if it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. I love this. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We certainly believe that God can do a miracle and deliver us. And we believe that he will. But even if he does, it doesn't change our mind one bit. And this beast, this false prophet, creates an image. And it seems as though he even makes it come to life. Certainly behind this is... Um, I remember watching the History Channel, I think, with the History Channel, and all of these ancient ideas of how they made these statues and stuff appear to speak and spew smoke and, you know, do all sorts of crazy things. I think that's probably in the background here that John is, John is using. But I think also Psalm chapter 115, verses 5 and 7, and the number of places in the book of Isaiah are certainly in, in John's mind. Because what was the big case that, especially Isaiah, um, one of his primary arguments against idolatry, I love it, he says, you go and you get a piece of wood, and you chop it in half. In the first half, you burn in the fire, and it keeps you warm, and you cook over it. In the second half, you carve eyes and a nose and a mouth on it, and then you be able to stand and prop it up, and you fall down and worship it. From the same log, one log gets burned, one half gets burned, the other you worship. He says, and they have eyes, but they don't see. And they have ears, but they can't hear. And they can't even stand up and have to prop it up, otherwise they'll fall over. And Isaiah's mocking them. This one. This one has eyes. And it sees. And it has ears. And it hears. And it has a mouth. And it speaks. So deceptive. So those who will not worship this beast are then put to death. And he causes all the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the freemen and the slaves to be given a mark. Even if people are not Christians or even have much knowledge of the Bible, they probably know two things about the Bible. The first one is they know the first half of Matthew 7 and 1. Right? Thou shalt not judge. You need to get them to learn the second half of Matthew 7 and 1. We actually need to get them to learn the whole chapter of Matthew 7. That would be better. Because Jesus then goes on and tells you how to judge. And what did Jesus say in Mark chapter when I started this? I'm going off on a small right here. False Christ and false prophets. How do you know that one's false unless you were to make some sort of discerning judgment? So they know that. Thou shalt not judge. They also know 666. 
We used to have in Arizona, we used to have a highway 666. It got changed. I don't know what it is now, but it's, uh, it's not 666. I rode my bike down it. I survived, and there were no demonic hordes chasing me or anything like that. It's actually quite beautiful. Anyways, I don't know how I got there. But let's, before we try to unpack this mark of the beast and try to come to a reasonable understanding of what this is all about, let's first talk about maybe some of its uh, characteristics. What do we know for a fact about this mark of the beast? Well, what we know is that it is an identifying sign on the right hand or the forehead. We know that for a fact. We know that it allows for the buying and selling. It allows for commerce. And we know that it is man's number. Okay, so that's what we know. There's a few other things that we should probably consider about the mark. We should not be surprised at all that it is a counterfeit. Chapter 13 is all about counterfeits. The book of Revelation has a sub-theme running all the way through it about counterfeits. So we should not be surprised that this mark is a counterfeit. It is a cheap imitation of what God does. You recall uh, back in Ezekiel chapter 9, God tells some angelic being, Go throughout Jerusalem and place a mark on the forehead of all those who worship God. He basically says all those who mourn over sin. And place a mark on their forehead. And when my judgment comes, it won't come upon them. And of course we saw this also in Revelation chapter 7, right? God's people were given a mark on their forehead. Identifying them, and identifying them as belonging to God. And so, this mark of God distinguishes ownership. But it's a counterfeit mark. You'll notice its location. It is on the forehead and the hand. That certainly takes us over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. The great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And it goes on. He says, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. Now, the Pharisees in Jesus' day took this quite literally. They actually had little boxes, little phylacteries, they called them, and they placed them on their foreheads, and they would play, play scripture in them. And those scriptures represented how much of the Bible they, they had, had memorized, and this is why Jesus condemns them. You know, he says, you enlarge your phylacteries so that they're big, you know, and look how much of God is right now. That was never really the intent, you know, they bump into things and can't get through doors. What's God saying? He's saying, just know my word. It'll be in your mind. Your thoughts are consumed with my thoughts. And on the other hand, your deeds are my deeds, and your ways are my ways. And all of your thoughts and all of your deeds are consumed with me. That's what it's about. 
So then when we come to this mark of the beast, it is on your forehead and on your hand. What is it all about? All of your thoughts and all of your deeds are consumed with opposing God and defying God and going your own way. It certainly reminds us of Romans chapter 1. The people did their own thing. And they worshipped the creature rather than the creator. And it says, God gave them over to the praying God to do the thing they ought to do. And all of their thoughts, and what it reminds us of, of in, the, in the days of Noah, and all of their thoughts were wicked continually. All of their thoughts, and all of their deeds. This, I believe, is our understanding of this mark of the beast on their hand and on their forehead. So, some of you may be asking to yourselves, well, what about modern technology where we have all these little microchips that we can put in our hand and in your forehead and, you know, we can work? Let me say a couple of things. First of all, I, I, I don't doubt that that's going to happen. All right? Um, you know, I dog has a microchip. That's all sorts of information about him. I suppose that we could put all sorts of um, medical information under your skin in such a way that we could just scan it and we would know what you're allergic to and, and probably all sorts of things. And perhaps it will actually be for buying and selling. I'm just saying, I don't think that's the market piece. In other words, I don't think that you're going to uh, get a barcode on your forehead. Well, you might. I just don't think that's the mark of the beast. And, and, and you might get a computer chip stuck under your skin. I just don't think that's the mark of the beast. For a number of reasons. Number one, um, to be consistent with our understanding of the book of Revelation, we are not understanding the book of Revelation as John seeing things that he is not seeing modern technology and trying to understand it in a first century in first century language. Just like I do not believe that, you know, when God says, I'll take you up in, on eagle's wings, this is not some sort of air vent. Alright? Likewise, this is not some sort of technological. The mark of the beast is not some sort of technological thing. A couple other reasons why I wouldn't think so, because in chapter 14, 9, and chapter 20, verse 4, those who have this particular mark, um, it, it appears that there is no repentance on this mark, which would make receiving it unforgivable. But as I recall, there's only one sin that's unforgivable, and it's not that. So, I think interpreting it through Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, is a, it's a, is a much better option for us. And the result of this, not aligning yourself with the beast will prohibit you from buying or selling. But we already saw that. Remember chapter 2 and 3? Remember the trade guilds that we talked about? If you did not participate in one of the trade guilds, then you couldn't buy or sell. You couldn't get a job. You could be a carpenter. But if you did not participate in the carpenter's trade guild, you could not buy or sell. You're saying, what's the problem with that? Just become um, part of the trade guild. Well, the way you became part of the trade guild is when you entered into the trade guild hall, you took a pinch of incense and you sacrificed it to whatever deity they happened to align themselves to. And Christians would say, well, I'm not going to align myself to any other deity other than Christ alone. 
And so they went on to participate in the Catholics. And if you not participate in the Catholics, not by yourself. And so the person who is not aligning themselves Peace will be shut out by itself. So now we come to our famous number. The number. First of all, before we do, we should probably try to understand this idea of gematria. Some of you are familiar with it. If you are not, you need to know about gematria. Gematria is simply the... Um, in many ancient languages, they do not have a distinct numbering system and alphabetical system. Alright, so like you and I, we have a distinct number system and a distinct alphabet. But many ancient languages did not. Hebrew didn't, Greek didn't, Sumerian didn't, uh, 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 so a number of ancient languages. So what they would do is um, each letter was assigned a value. So in Hebrew, Aleph, which is your first letter of the alphabet, was assigned a number one. And Beth is a two, and a Gimel is a three, and a Daleth is a four, and a He is a five, and a Resh is a, is a six, and a Zayin is a seven, and on and on and on and on. It's a, it's a base 10 system, so when you get to Yod, you go to 10, Kath is 20, Lamed is 30, Mem is 40, and so forth and so on. And it's actually kind of interesting because these are final forms, but I won't get into that. But I didn't know final forms had their own number. But that's what it is. So you would spell something, and if you spelled something, and if the word was Ab, Aleph and Beth, it would have a, a number of 1 and 2. I guess you could add those up, and you'd have 3. You're a math guy, aren't I? <laughs> Stuck to two letters on purpose. So that's Hebrew, alright? But the Greek was the same. And I thought, let's see our little Greek chart. I know I got a Greek chart. I put one up there. So here's the same. Alpha is one, beta, um, gamma, delta, on and on and on, theta, eta, kappa, Move all those, okay? So they all have their little numbering systems. Again, it's a base 10 system. So the idea here then is you can take a name and assign it a numerical value. This is very common. And we actually found, there are archaeological sites where they've actually found graffiti, first century taggers. I don't know how they got away with a chisel and <laughs> took them a while, but. That's why there weren't many because they all got caught. Six weeks. But yeah, we actually have um, ancient graffiti where uh, written somewhere says, I love the girl whose number is 545. I don't know who that is. But it was common. So now that you are all experts in gematria, we come to the idea of this number of the beast whose number is 666. Based on the math here, we should be able to assign it a value. We should be able to assign it, um, since it's given a value, we should be able to go through and figure out and decode it through a gematria. Well, I'm going to give you three views. I just held up five fingers. It's <laughs> three views 
that are common. There are probably many, many more um, ideas out there, but let me give you the three most common ideas of what this number is all about. And the first one, I, I'm just calling it crazy. And normally I don't give you the crazy view, but because somebody I know somewhere is going to ask me or ask you, I was reading something on the internet, so I know it's true, that... LeBron James is the Antichrist. Do you think that's true? No. But the crazy view is basically um, assigned pretty much everybody in human history as the Antichrist. Bill Gates, I just read, could be the Antichrist because somehow they figured out that his name comes up to 666. And of course, Henry Kissinger, he's pretty famous. He's, you know, the Pope. It doesn't matter which one, all of them, any of them, they're always the beast. Um, Ronald Reagan, of course, he's the beast. And I'm sure George Bush, and I'm sure Barack Obama, it doesn't matter, they're all the beast. According to the crazy view. Somewhere, some way, you can get 666 out of their name. All right. So when somebody comes to you and says, I was reading somewhere that named person, doesn't matter how obscure or how famous, is the beast. They don't, you know, Britney Spears is the beast. Well, that may be true. <laughs> but that's the crazy view. Okay. A view that I think has merit is that 666 is describing Nero Caesar. Because if you use gematria and you use the word Nero Caesar, you'll come up with 666. Well, not exactly. But you'll get close. Well, if you change a few things, then you'll get I believe that Nero, because of his influence, his wicked influence over the early church, I'm not surprised that he's in the background of much of our text. And I don't think 666 is Nero Caesar. And the reasons I don't think that it's Nero Caesar is, uh, first of all, um, you have to assign him, you have to go with Nero Caesar. And, and my first question is why that title? He went by about 15 different titles, so why Nero Caesar? That's pretty subjective, so that's number one. Um, but let's just say we do go with Nero Caesar. Um, um, Neron Kaiser. Then what we have to do is we have to translate Neron Kaiser into Hebrew. Now I'm not sure why we would translate it into Hebrew and not Greek, because John's readers are Greek readers, not Hebrew readers. In fact, whenever we go through the book of Revelation and there's a Hebrew term, John explains it because he knows his readers don't understand it. He says, this is what it means in Hebrew. This is the Hebrew word. This is what it really means. So John's readers are Hebrew readers. So the reason why they have switched to Hebrew and not Greek, I don't know. Oh, and then you need to have a defective spelling of that Hebrew phrase. You have to leave out a couple letters. They're possible to leave out and still come up with Nero Caesar. But so, so here's what we need to do. We need to take a name, assign a title, give it a Hebrew spelling that is errant, and then come. This is why I don't think Nero Caesar. There, there's some real merit, and there are a number of really, really great, 
great scholars who would hold it. fact, my doctoral supervisor, um, she's not real firm on it, but you would go with it. And he gets that from Richard Bauckham, who, by the way, wrote one of the greatest works on the book of Revelation called The Climax of Prophecy. If you're interested in the book of Revelation, you should read Bauckham's book. And Bauckham holds to this. So, certainly not something to be mocked. I'm just not convinced because of the subjectivity towards it. In fact, um, I want you to read this quote um, from, it comes out of uh, Greg Beale's commentary. There we go. So here's kind of a tongue-in-cheek way of coming about 666. First, if the proper name by itself will not yield it, 666, add a title. Secondly, if the sum cannot be found in Greek, try Hebrew, or even Latin. Thirdly, do not need to do particular about study. We cannot infer much from the fact that a key fits the lock if it is a lock in which almost any key will turn. In other words, I'll bet you I could get two-thirds of your names in this room to be 666. I can assign you a title, Mrs., Mom, Doctor, whatever, Teacher, get your name, translate it into some language that uses gematria, and with a few things, and if it doesn't quite work, I can use effective so and I'll bet you I can get all of you to be the Antichrist. Very subjective. This is why I'm not convinced that it's Nero Caesar. Though I think we're on the right track. So then, as you know, I take a symbolic view of the book of Revelation. And uh, so here's the third view that is symbolic. And um, symbolic view simply says that, number one, it shouldn't surprise us that this is a counterfeit number. Some people have held that um, 777 would be a number of perfection, 666 would be defective. I could probably live with that short of perfection um, or close to perfection, um, a counterfeit. Probably one of the greatest New, New Testament scholars of our day, Don Carson, um, in discussing this at the very end of his discussion on this particular issue, comes to the conclusion of, I don't know. He says, the readers of John's day knew, but there are so many problems with all of the Jews that he just concludes, I, I don't really know. I'm going to stick with the symbolic view. It's not perfect. but I'm more persuaded by it than the other views. But we shouldn't have any problem figuring out if anybody tries to cause you to worship that which is not Christ, even if they do miracles, I don't care what their numbers, their name spells out. So we'll close with this. Counterfeits create a false sense of security. But in the end, counterfeits leave you bankrupt. It doesn't matter how close to the original a counterfeit is. Even if it is 99.9% accurate, it's still worth a If you have socks in a company and it's worth a million dollars, but they're counterfeit socks, you're bankrupt. And if you go to a sporting event and you have a ticket that looks really, really true and you're going to the Super Bowl, but it's counterfeit. You don't get in. It doesn't matter how close it is. It doesn't matter how 
much like the original it appears to be. They left bankrupt and outside. And so it is. Beware of false Christs and false prophets. They will leave you bankrupt. The dragon's war includes two agents. Political power and religious dece deception. But we need not fear the dragon, the beast, or the false prophet. We need not fear the mark. Because the Bible says that you've been sealed with the mark of God. So, instead, we should be distinct diligent to distinguish truth from counterfeit and hold fast to the gospel that saves and the gospel that glorifies Christ. Let's stand and let's pray.